Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This episode is a special presentation based on the proceedings of the Visual Sources of Late Ottoman History Conference held at Columbia University in April 2017. When the organizers, Zeynep Çelik, Leyla Amzi Erdoğdular, Zeynep Elsarat Azerbaijan, and Dotan Halevi proposed the idea of making an episode related to the conference, I knew it would fit perfectly with our series on the visual past, curated by Emily Neumeyer in Unver Rustem. You can find that series on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. This episode is comprised of an introductory conversation with the organizers, followed by short segments with the conference participants. In each segment, the presenter will discuss the history and context of a particular visual source they employ in their research. Make sure to visit the post for this episode on our blog, again, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to behold these fascinating visuals. The recordings for this podcast were conducted by the many Ottoman History Podcast team members who attended the conference, so special thanks to Michael Ferguson, as well as Secha Yilmaz, Michael Talbot, and Sam Dolby for making this episode possible. Now here's Michael Ferguson with Zeynep Çelik and Leila Amzi Erdoğdular. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. We are recording on location at the Visual Sources in Late Ottoman History Conference at Columbia University, organized by the Columbia University Seminar in Ottoman and Turkish Studies. I'm Michael Ferguson. In this collaboration, we'll be ta- talking to the organizers of this conference at Columbia University about new approaches to visual sources for the history of the late Ottoman Empire. Zeynep Çelik is a distinguished professor of architecture and history at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and adjunct professor in history at Columbia. She is known for her work on Ottoman and French colonial urban history. Zeynep, welcome. Hello, Michael. Uh, Zeynep is joined by Leila Amzi Erdodular, who received her PhD from Columbia University in 2013 and is assistant professor of history at Rutgers University as of September. Congratulations, Leila. Our audience has heard her before on the podcast in an interview with Susie Ferguson, no relation to myself, about late Ottoman Bosnia and the imperial afterlife. Leila, welcome back. Hi. Tell us about the visual sources in late Ottoman history conference what you hope to accomplish by organizing this conference, and some of the most important themes and questions it addresses. In conceptualizing the conference, we were inspired by the current state of the literature on late Ottoman history. This literature is rigorous, it's vibrant, it's diverse, and methodologically experimental. Our goal was to bring together a representative sample of recent scholarship by emerging scholars. We organized the conference around one overarching theme, the use of visual sources in the writing of political and social history. In focusing upon visual sources, we aim to address what we diagnosed as a problem. That is, 
the fact that visual materials are commonly considered by historians for decorative purposes. They are not taken seriously as documents in themselves. Random images, ever growing in numbers, seem to serve as light diversions to the boring formats of all text publications. They're often tangentially connected to the topic studied, sometimes even showing contextual and chronological discrepancies. The papers included in this conference take another approach. They use a wide range of visual materials as original documents of comparable value to textual documents. Without prioritizing them, our scholars enrich their arguments by bridging different forms of data and by triangulating their questions from multiple perspectives. This is in part enabled by the differences in the nature of the documents. This kind of interdisciplinary work is not easy, as the ground can quickly slip beneath one's feet. How do academic disciplines interact with each other and learn from each other? How is a good balance maintained in synthesizing seemingly incompatible kinds of sources? What are the methodologies adopted? How elastic are they? How far can we force their elasticity? These are only some of the questions the papers will open up. Today, uh, we are impressed with the wealth and range of sources um, brought up in, in these papers and presentations, including photographs, sketches, cartoons, films, architectural drawings, and maps um, as primary sources for the study of late Ottoman history in an interdisciplinary perspective. Um, our aim at this workshop, as, as Zeynep uh, uh, explained, was to discuss methodolo methodological approaches to using visual sources for the study of history and identify issues in use of such primary, sor uh, primary sources, primary materials. And some of those issues that come up um, today um, are, um, for instance, the variety of sites where the visual sources or documents containing them would be found. Uh, from state archives, which is the traditional go-to archive for Ottomanists, to private collections, albums, books, periodicals, Sufi shrines, and others. Uh, something that we also discussed today is the extent, but also the limits of using visual sources as primary sources, and to what degree they can, be, they can interact with other sources, mainly textual sources, and overlap with other disciplines. And finally, uh, something that uh, is, is an overarching theme here is the, the state of Ottoman studies in digital humanities and how um, our workshop today made, makes some relevant inroads into articulating a, a constructive way of doing this. So using these visual sources and new combining them with new technologies um, and, and kind of talking about the uh, state of Ottoman studies in digital humanities or digital humanities in Ottoman studies. All right, and thanks very much, Zeynep and Leila. And now let's hear from some of the presenters. The first contribution comes from Özde Çelik Temel Tolman from University College London. You've heard her before on the program. Her paper was entitled, Filmic Evidence in the Writing of Ottoman Cinema History, and in this segment she'll be talking about film clips featuring 
Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II. So Sultan Abdul Hamid II um, became the subject of two films in 1905 and 1908. In this way, even though he was secluded at the Yildiz Palace, cinema made him mobile. And after the 1905 assassination attempt of the Sultan, the first film captured his image during the Friday prayers. And this shot was taken approximately two weeks after the bombing and was likely done so to prove he was still alive, uh, although there were mm, 26 victims. Also, this incident was depicted via the use of photographs entitled Bomb Incident Record, showing similar images of the Sultan, leaving the Selamluk ceremony and other photographs included the evidence such as bombs and mines. So another film that I used at film enlargement uh, belongs to the Friday prayer at the Hamidiyah Mosque, Hamidiyah Jami in the Juma Selamlı, um, shot in 1908, uh, and it was found in Patefer catalog. This film depicted the Sultan and the royal family in their carriages, along with the crowds gathering for prayer at the palace premises. The Pathek catalog lists the screening of this film in France in September 1908 and and uh, most probably it was available in other uh, European countries at the time. And um, we see here the Hamidiyah Mosque and the ta- uh, clock tower and people gathered waiting for Sultan under, the, under their umbrellas. So the uh, first the troops arrive and later on we'll see the sultan waving at people and later on the carriages of the harem will be seen in the film so it was approximately 90 meters and i'd like to talk about the third film as well uh, that sultan appeared and and it's the opening of the ottoman parliament uh, so we reached this information uh, via mustafa ozan's um very meticulously done research in daily newspapers. And in this film, which was shot by Sigmund Weinberg, uh, the Sultan was not the center of attention unlike those two other films. And the film was made after the constitutional revolution of the Young Turks against the Sultan in July 1908. And his appearance in this film during the ceremonies shows that um, his support for for the parliamentary regime also uh, historian cited Ozan indicates that these three films prove that the Sultan used moving pictures for political goals, especially during crisis and crucial moments, as I mentioned, the assassination and the Young Turk Revolution. And the strict control of his image and portraits in the public space uh, was used depending on specific goals and political agenda. And we can conclude that the power of cinema could convey certain messages and the Sultan was aware of this fact. So the, the film enlargement we have here from 1908 could be viewed in reference to the Young Turk Revolution and his struggle to claim the sultanic and monarchic rule in collaboration with the new constitutional and liberal regime. The next guest is Mehmet Kentel from Coach University, his paper was entitled, 
caricaturizing cosmopolitan para, play, critique, and absence in use of Franco's caricatures, 1884 to 1896. In this clip, he'll be analyzing one of those colorful late Ottoman caricatures. Uh, so the source I'm working on is an unpublished caricature album that is now in Omar Koch collection. And the caricatures in the album were made by Yusuf Franco, an Ottoman bureaucrat, uh, between the years 1884 and 1896. And the particular image that I wanted to uh, mention um, now is the last one of the uh, album. It's called L'Expiation, the Expiation, uh, which depicts the characters of Yusuf Franco participating in different ways, the public hanging of the caricatures, Yusuf Franco himself. Uh, many of them pulling the ropes, family members are crying, and diplomats of the para, of the late 19th century para, are observing the scene. And Istanbul's skyline scene in the background of the image for the first time in the entire album. And the characters that are depicted in the image were all taken from other images in the album, so they are uh, drawn in the exact same way they were drawn in individual portraits uh, that belonged to the album. Uh, and with these visual references to the rest of the album, Yusuf Franco puts the dramatic finishing touch of a multi-layered multi urban and social narrative uh, that he continued over 120 drawings and for 13 years. And the strings, the ropes that uh, Yusuf are killed through, actually connects, connect Yusuf to his urban community. Um, and even though Yusuf was, in this visual uh, representation, was killed at the hands of his fellow community, para-community members, it, this image actually shows that uh, the entire album was the doing of this urban community, and then it, make, it made sense that the, the same community also ended this uh, production. Uh, Yusuf's caricature album has been a social undertaking from the very start, an informal commissioning by the para-society, but it still raises several questions, of course. Uh, was this connected to any real-life event, any threats felt by Yusuf that forced him to quit his artistic production? And if the answer is yes, did it come from the members of the Paris Society, as the uh, painting suggests, or more likely from a higher authority from the state bureaucracy uh, at a time when the notorious censor regime of Abdulhamid was at its peak? Uh, that's something that we don't know. But what we can do in the absence of such factual information is to treat the censor regime and the risk of being persecuted not only as limiting forces on the creative scene uh, in the late 19th century para, uh, the Ottoman Istanbul, uh, but rather as constitutive elements of how art or creative production is uh, formed and circulated. With the lack of established channels for publishing and circulating his artistic creation, Franco was motivated to turn his production into a social game, a game whose existence was ended, as I said, uh, with the climax of the game by the members of his uh, community. And the fact that Franco chooses to show the landscape of Istanbul for the first time in this composition uh, seems to be especially fitting when we appreciate the urban community as the central actor in this creation. But of course, and I try to uh, expand on that in my work, this community was limited. Uh, both in numbers but also in class formation. Even though they were multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, they were all members of the elite classes residing in or visiting the late Ottoman capital. Bureaucrats, diplomats, businessmen, the world-famous artists. And the absence of others, the migrant, the displaced, the homeless, the worker, 
the servant, etc., are uh, or the absence is a very critical feature of the album. And I argue that their exclusion from the album should give us a critical window to appreciate how exclusion was fundamental to the formation of elite spaces in late Ottoman Pera. Next, we have a familiar voice for podcast listeners, Michael Talbot from University of Greenwich. His paper was titled, And the Military Band Spread Joy Through Their Music, a photographic microhistory of a late Ottoman Jerusalemite crowd. In this clip, he zooms in on a high-resolution stereographic image of an Ottoman band in Jerusalem to humorous effect. So this image is is a really interesting one. It's a it's a stereograph. So it's not a normal photograph. It would it would be put into a, a special machine um, that would give the impression of it being 3D. So it's meant to be viewed, um, and it's of the performance of the military band of the of the Ottoman garrison of Jerusalem in 1903. And what's interesting about this particular source is not so much the band themselves, but the people who who have gathered there to watch them. And what I've tried to do in my presentation and in, in, in the paper is to take this kind of micro-reading of this particular source, zooming in as far as I physically can on the faces of the crowd uh, to try and understand the experience of this particular kind of performance. So much of what's written about the performance of being Ottoman in the late Ottoman Empire is from the state's perspective. So it's what the state wants to achieve and what it hopes to achieve. Whereas when we can start to look at the crowds in a photograph like this, um, we can maybe get a sense of how people actually responded to things like public performance. And one of the, the really interesting things about this image, and perhaps our, our listeners and then readers can spot a few themselves, is, is the less than favorable reaction, perhaps, of some of the observers. So we have um, some people who look distinctly bored, some who are perhaps a bit more than bored and a bit, a bit annoyed at what they're listening to. And my favorite in, in the right-hand side of the, of the photograph is, is a little girl who's actually covered her ears because she's so disturbed by what's being played. And this sort of thing can tell us something quite interesting, that not all bands sounded great, not all performances were things that people wanted to attend, mm -hmm. and that in this sort of space we can really get a sense of, of a popular reaction to something that the state perhaps imposes in public space. Now for another celebration of sorts, Marat Yildiz from Skidmore College, analyzing an image from the Galatasaray Museum of a Chichek Bayrama, or Flower Holiday, which was featured in his paper, Reconstructing the Mecca for Sportsmen, quote-unquote, the Union Club in late Ottoman Istanbul. So this photograph is part of a broader photograph album that was collected, organized, and stored at the Galatasaray uh, Physical Training uh, club uh, in Istanbul. And the photograph is of uh, an event that was organized in 1914, Chichek Bayrama, or, or Flower Holiday. I'm using this photograph and also the other photographs that make up this unpublished album um, in two ways. One, as uh, an illustration of a past event or a, or a series of past events. And so what I'm trying to do is to kind of reconstruct the type of events that Istanbulites organized and gathered to watch uh, at this uh, at the at the space of Union Club, and this is the album is is by and large uh, narrating a series of different um, athletic 
uh, and sporting events that were organized at Union Club from 1913 to 1914. The other way that I'm trying to um, to to read this this photograph, but but this larger album as 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 a set of social objects. And so what I'm doing is trying to um, to think about how these albums contributed to a distinct identity of the space of the Union Club and also uh, the space of the uh, of, 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 of Galata Sarai Physical Training uh, Club, uh, a predominantly um, Muslim sports club that was established in the, in the early 20th century in Istanbul. Next up is Burçak Özludil Altın from New Jersey Institute of Technology, discussing an image of the female section of the Toptasha Asylum, which was part of her paper entitled Psychiatry, Space and Time, the case of an Ottoman asylum. So this image that you're looking at is a byproduct of my dissertation, Madness and Empire, the Ottoman Asylum 1830 to 1930, in which I analyze the medicalization of insanity and the modernization of psychiatric spaces. Space is crucial as in the 19th century, psychiatric practice was closely ingrained in the spaces of the asylums. In the Ottoman Empire, in the absence of purpose-built ideal asylums, the modernization and medicalization took place in repurposed culliers or royal complexes. And I argue that this is, it's precisely through the modifications of the buildings that one cannot demonstrate the change of Ottoman psychiatry during this period. So in my work, by creatively combining visual and textual sources, I reconstruct the life of and life in the Ottoman asylums. And this combined image depicts Toptash Asylum that was used as the sole state mental hospital between 1873 and 1924. And this particular block, which was original the Darushifa or Imperial Hospital of the Atikwali the Royal Complex is the female section of the asylum. And the upper left image is the state when female inmates first transferred here. And a little note here is that this image is created in a platform that provides scholars with a tool for temporal spatial analysis, that is, how a space has changed over time, or how a space is used by incorporating time in the visualization of their research, as well as a way of sharing the scholarship. So what follows, so the second one, is the drawing that shows the second floor addition to this section. With this floor, four words were added, theoretically leaving the ground floor to shared services such as dining, cleaning, and in quotation marks, airing in the courtyard. The fourth image combines the model of the section after 1895 with an actual photographs. And photographs of the female section are quite rare compared to those of male sections. And it is a very interesting photograph as it's probably one of the least staged or posed of all the images I've seen so far of mental patients. Typically, asylum photographs are carefully arranged and are almost always staged to convey a certain message. Patients are gathered in lines in their identical clothing. They either sit or stand in front of a selected background at a desirable part of the asylum. But in contrast, this photograph showing women patients in the courtyard is far from being neat. Everyone seems to be doing something else, looking to a different direction, not in lines, in varying outfits, and even some look to be having some some sort of episode uh, and others helping them, some sitting in the upstairs corridor, some looking downstairs holding the iron bars that probably aim to prevent suicide attempts and others simply strolling around. It also shows that patients could walk freely at least during a lot of times between the wards on the second floor and the services on the first floor. <laughs> 
staying with the theme of medicine, here's Sachili Ilmaz from Cornell University discussing an image of an Ottoman museum from her paper depicting the body in the late Ottoman Empire, a medical perspective for visual sources. I work on history of um, medicine, uh, sexuality, and gender in the late Ottoman Empire, and this particular paper came out from as a, as a der- derivative of my dissertation project. And I'm really interested in how the depiction of human body evolved in the medical books and pamphlets, and how these um, new understanding of uh, modern medicine has been used um, as a tool for public health education and public health propaganda. And one amazing Example of this actually emerged in the time of World War One, and a public health museum that was opened in Divan Yolu in Istanbul, as we know today. And doctors who were also artists um, worked together, and then they uh, basically produced moulage, the models, and um, some pictures, and also some charts that is um, accessible to general audience. And they basically placed them in the museum space. Uh, it's basically a cul- culmination of an, an larger uh, visual culture of medicine in the long 19th century, as we can talk about it. So one in- interesting thing is there's an vernacularization of imaging of the body. So when we look at those some of the pictures which were published in Suhi Musée uh, Atlasu, uh, Public Health Museum Almanac uh, Atlas, uh, we see they're also reflecting the social uh, family life in those pictures, and and, and uh, there's one image that we're going to upload on the uh, website of the Ottoman History Podcast that one can see how um, a family life and also life in a um, medical clinic has been depicted. So I think in general, this is very interesting for us to be able to see how communicating to be healthy, uh, communicating public health and po- teaching about public health and preventive medicine uh, was not necessarily a an, an, an discourse that has been confined among professionals, but actually those professionals, those doctors were actively engaged with uh, propaganda to be able to reach a uh, general audience by using museum space uh, through these um, artistic artifacts. We've got three presenters left in our queue. First up is Burcin Chakr from Glasgow Caledonian University, discussing an image from her paper about visual war propaganda and religion expressed in the war journal or Harp Mejmwasa of the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. Yeah, the image uh, I have chosen is from the war journal, which was published uh, for 27 issues for the duration of three years. And it holds a significant body of visual material waiting to be interpreted. And in this image, among the peasants of Anatolia, as we know, the visual use of religion, particularly around the rhetoric of jihad, was a necessity as Islamic themes and symbols. They all constitute a common language which the Ottoman state could draw on. Uh, simple and short visual references to religion certainly assisted to mobilize and motivate Ottoman society's emotions at the highest level. The following photograph, the visual that I have chosen, is a kind of collective example of such material. It underlines the idea of the preserving of Islamic faith in victory, no matter what the conditions were and would be. 
In the photograph, as we see, we see Ottoman soldiers building an ideal condition for their religious performances, their religious duties. Even, even during the times of despair and scarcity of sources, the pulpit minbar for the sermon hutbah is constructed by empty ammunition chests, and the necessary sanitary for religious performance was sustained by a carpet, which shows the respect of the soldiers to their religion, no matter the conditions that the trenches were. On the pages of several issues of the journal, photos of strong, this proud and well-dressed Ottoman soldiers performing their religious, duty, religious duties were promoted. These, in a way, posed stage photographs almost always were followed by a short and striking line with highly religious connotations, mo mostly from Quran. The readers were assured that the loyal soldiers of the Ottoman army were faithful to their religion and were fully aware that they were fighting for Darul Hilafe ve Sultanat Kapılarını Muhafaza, translated as to fight for the defense of the gates of the Caliphate and the Sultanate. And in this sense, Ottomanist and pan-Islamist dreams combined together were always kept alive. The war at all fronts were nostalgically depicted as a defense to invasion that would unite the Ottoman and Islamic world together. However, as we all know, the vividness and repetition of the same religious visuals created a powerful and persistent memory only, only on the minds of the Anatolian populations. And these visuals in various form unified the literate and li illiterate populations of, the Anat of Anatolia and led to a collectively experienced visual culture of war which sustained the liberation movement at the heart of Anatolia later on. So I suggest that the ways in which we understand the visual sources of the Ottoman war propaganda can in a way enhance the study of history of First World War in the Middle East by posing new questions suggesting new answers to unrevealed dimensions of this kind of research with material unavailable elsewhere. In reading these images closely, in conjunction with other written and visual accounts, the World War I experience of Ottomans can be placed in transnational context of war and propaganda. This is the value of war visuals, visuals actually, this is the value of war visuals in which I will argue that Ottoman states scheme and public reception of it can be interpreted in depth. Finally, we'll conclude with two Columbia University graduate students who were instrumental in organizing the conference and this podcast. Here's Zeynep El-Sadat Azerbaijan offering Iranian perspectives on Ottoman Iraq from her paper, Imagine Geographies Reinvented Histories. Ottoman Iraq in Iranian textual and visual sources. Well, I'm going to talk about the paper and sort of the main uh, thesis of the paper, which is about how Ottoman Iraq was imagined as historically as part of Iran, specifically by the Qajars. It has a longer history, but what is interesting about what the Qajars are doing is um, that they are using photography, like the photo that you can see now, um, as well as some sort of production of archaeological knowledge about ancient sites uh, to claim this um, sort of historical connection between Iran and Iraq, uh, Ottoman Iraq. The image that you see is an Im image of a sort of historic sites um, which is um, identified by the Qajars as Sasanian, uh, which you see 
on the left, which is the two uh, vaulted arches, and they have reliefs like um, dug into sort of um, the mountain. And on the right, you see basically a Qajar building in the same style. And to me, this is, this is uh, basically something which, uh, going with the theme of the conference and um, focusing on visual sources, is something that you would never get from a textual source. The power of the, this image and sort of visually stating so, and connecting these two histories of kingship, like connecting the Sasanians to the Qajars, is visually stated, which is actually much more accessible to everybody uh, because most people were illiterate and couldn't read. But this is visually stated, and the the Rajar building is actually also massive. Like the scale, like we, we don't have a sense of a scale in this photo, but um, the building is quite big, and the arches are built in the same style. So it's a very clear sort of visual statement. And the reason this is important is. Um, not just about sort of the, the way that sort of the Rajars talk about this in uh, the, their textual production, but also how they connect it to Sasanian sites, what they identify as Sasanian sites in Ottoman Iraq. And the main site that they connect this to is Tagakasra, which is uh, south of Iraq in, in middle of the desert. And it also has this characteristic sort of arch this uh, which is not a sort of it's not a pointed arch and they basically tell this connect their uh, kingship the Qajar kingship to the Sasanian kingship through telling the history of these sites and connecting them their power to these sort of sites but also producing knowledge about these sites Last up, Dotan Halidi, taking us beyond the Ottoman period to talk about ruins and banknotes in the British Mandate in Palestine, from his paper, Capturing Ottoman Ruins, Contending Visions of Continuity and Rupture in Preserving the Tower of Ramle. Uh, so my paper focuses um, on the uh, weird uh, relations that the British in Palestine uh, had with the historical ruins uh, through the case of the Tower of Ramle. So uh, you're looking at uh, a picture of a bill of the Palestine pound, uh, which features the Tower of Ramle, but in a very specific form. Um, this is the tower um, as a ruin. Um, this is how the tower looked like when the British took over Palestine during the First World War. Uh, but by 1925, the tower was facelifted, uh, renovated uh, by the uh, British Department of Antiquities. Um, the British saw the building uh, as a crusader's relic, and therefore um, they pushed to preserve it pretty fast. The interesting uh, thing that they did with the Palestine Pound is that even though the building was by then already preserved, they chose the image of the building as a ruin. Why they chose to do that? Um, in my paper, I argued that during the process of preservation, uh, as the building turned from a ruin uh, into uh, basically a normal building, its allure um, gradually perished. The British, in fact, uh, were attracted to the building because its uh, vision 
as an ancient ruins as an ancient ruin that can be redeemed uh, and salvaged uh, from the hands of the Ottomans. And uh, when it turned to be a normal building, um, they lost interest uh, in it. And therefore, for its widely distributed uh, image as a bill, they um, prioritized the 19th century figure of the building as a ruin. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Ottoman History Podcast. Thanks once again to the members of our production team, Michael Ferguson, Sacha Yilmaz, Michael Talbot, and Sam Dolby, as well as Zainab Al-Sadat Azerbaijan and the rest of the crew at Columbia. To access all the images for this episode and other material pertaining to the conference and this topic, visit our post on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You'll find this installment under the Episodes tab or under the Series tab within the listings for The Visual Past. On the website, you can revisit individual clips of our dear presenters, all of which I've uploaded to our SoundCloud account. Once again, I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for this episode. Please join us next time in another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. <laughs>